Let's pray. Lord, as we have read about your arrival in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, we've seen that there were those who welcomed you and those who did not. So as we come to this part of the Bible, we welcome you here. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, draw near to us and teach us from your word today. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had an experience in life, you know one of those experiences where you just kind of had to be there. Maybe it was something really amazing happened to you, um, or, or maybe it was something really, really funny, and when it happened, you know, your sides were splitting, you could hardly breathe for laughing about it, but then you go to tell somebody else about it, and you just see this blank look on their face, and they look at you as if to say, that was funny, and you realize, no, you just kind of had to be there. It happened to me um, when I was telling people about an experience that I had on holiday. In in 2014, I was on holiday in Florida, and I went out one day with my father-in-law to NASA, and we actually got to see a shuttle being launched that went up to the International Space Station. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. But no matter how hard I seemed to tell people about this when I came home, they just kind of smiled and said, oh, I'm sure that was good, you know, I'm glad, I'm sure that was nice to be there. But I just can't get it across, the sound of the thing, the place was shaking, the the brightness of the, the boosters on the bottom, they were incandescent, you could hardly look at it. There was tension in the air because we weren't sure if it was going to happen because the weather wasn't good right up until the last minute. And people just say, oh, I'm sure that was nice to see up close in real life, yeah. But they just don't get how breathtaking it was. You just had to be there. And I suspect for most of us, the story of Palm Sunday is quite a familiar one in our head. Maybe we've got this picture of it in our minds, maybe something that we've seen in a children's Bible or something like that. And for many of us, we've known the story since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. Either that or, or maybe you're new to church And you maybe think that it's a bit weird that Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a baby donkey and all these people were singing and shouting around him. But either way, Matthew was there. He was an eyewitness. And he has a unique perspective on this story that we would do well actually not to miss. Whether we're coming to this for the first time or whether you've heard a sermon about it every year that you've been on this earth. And so I want want you to come with me on, on a journey into the mind of a disciple into the mind of Matthew. Now, don't worry, you don't have to start going around collecting taxes because that's what he did. But let's just try and get into his head. Let's walk through this story as he told it and pick out some details that caught his attention enough for him to write down, but that we might be tempted to skip over because we think we know the story. So let's begin. The first part of the story, we see two blind men receiving their sight at the end of chapter 20. Now, this maybe isn't traditionally part of the Palm Sunday story, but I think it is in Matthew's mind, and I'll explain why in a moment. But remember, Matthew didn't write his gospel with chapters and verses. That was all added in later. He just wrote it all as one big thing. And and I suspect here the people who put the chapter divisions in might have got it slightly wrong, because I think this is part of the story. Now, for two blind men to be healed, clearly that's awesome, right? But it would hardly have been a surprise to Matthew because he has seen blind and deaf and mute and lame and disabled people all restored to full health. He's seen demons be cast out of people, however we understand that. He's seen dead people being raised to life. So seeing two blind men healed, well, I wouldn't like to say it's old hat to Matthew, but it's hardly a surprise to him, is it? 
But Matthew notices them at the side of the road. He notices that people in the crowd are trying to shush them to make them be quiet. Hardly a surprise again, given the attitudes that were around at the time. These men wouldn't have had any rights. They probably wouldn't have been able to work. And people would have generally ignored them. But again, Matthew's seen this before. Jesus stops to speak to them. People the crowd expect him to ignore because he's too important. Jesus stops. He speaks to them. And and as he so often does, he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? As if he doesn't already know what the answer is. But so often he asks The men want to receive their sight, and Jesus does as they ask, and they follow him. But one thing stands out to Matthew, I think, so I think it should stand out to us as well as we try and get into his mind and understand what he's thinking as he's writing this down for us. It's what the blind men say. He doesn't say, oh, they they called out and he stopped, but he actually records what they say. They say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, that's why I think it's part of the Palm Sunday story, because they cry out that Jesus is the son of David, which is exactly the same as the crowd when Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and the children in the temple as well. When he gets there, they all say, Hosanna to the son of David. These blind men, who hadn't been following Jesus, who hadn't probably heard him very much, who hadn't heard him teach, they seem to know who he is seems to be a pattern in Jesus' ministry that those who you would expect not to know who he is, know who he is. People possessed by evil spirits know who he is. In Mark chapter 1, we read of a man possessed by an evil spirit, an impure spirit, and he cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And these blind men, they know too. And the title that they use, Son of David, is particularly significant. All of the titles that Jesus uses are significant. Of course, Son of God means that he is divine. He's God himself. Son of Man means that he's the one who's going to return at the end of time and be the judge of all. But Son of David is significant because it reveals that Jesus is the King or the Messiah. The word Messiah simply means uh, anointed one. We sang about the anointed one in our first song today. Um, And it was a practice in the Old Testament where God sent prophets to anoint the one who was chosen to be the king of Israel. And so when King David was on the throne, God promised him that one of his offspring would establish God's kingdom forever. We read uh, in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring, this is God speaking, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And then in Psalm 2, God calls his son his anointed and the Hebrew word behind that is the word Messiah. So this Messiah, this this son of David is going to be king, someone who establishes God's kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. So when the blind men call Jesus the son of David, it's quite significant. Now, the disciples themselves actually have only just worked this out a few chapters before Palm Sunday in Matthew 16. Jesus asks them, who who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ and Messiah are the same word. And what does Jesus instruct his disciples? He says, don't tell anyone. He ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So the disciples who've been following all this time have only just worked it out, but they've kept it to themselves, presumably. 
But somehow these two blind men at the side of the road, they know. Weird, isn't it? No wonder Matthew picks up on it. We'll come back to that. What about what happens next? The, the triumphal entry, the main Palm Sunday story. Well, Jesus sends these two disciples ahead to get the donkey. And I have to think to myself, I guess by this stage the disciples had just stopped asking questions. I mean, I mean they'd seen all these wonderful, amazing things that Jesus did when, it, when he did something a little bit strange. You know, they, they'd been out fishing all night, the disciples, and they knew how to fish. And Jesus said, cast your net over the side of the boat and they thought well we, we've been out all night and there aren't going to be any fish there but okay we'll do it and when they pulled the nets in they couldn't pull them in for the amount of fish they saw Jesus instruct people to, to draw water out of water jars when they ran out of wine I mean that's strange and, and it turned into wine they, they obeyed him when he told them to, to sit 5,000 men plus women and children down when he only had a boy's lunch to feed them with they saw him feed those people. So I guess by the stage when he says, go get me a donkey, you probably look back and you think, do you know what? I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to do it. I imagine if I asked my friends to go and get me a donkey, they'd probably say, well, is there something wrong with your legs? But the disciples just do it. They just do it. It is a strange request. We don't think of it as strange, maybe because it's familiar to us and we think, well, yeah, Jesus on a donkey, so what? You know, think of the Christmas story, you know, little donkey, little donkey, all that. It's not actually in the Bible, that donkey. Um, it's not in the Nativity story, but we see children do it every year. And so, you know, uh, we just think it's there. Maybe they walked. We don't know. All right, you say, but it's still not that strange, is it? I mean, there was no glider service. People did travel around on donkeys. But it is strange. It's strange for two reasons. First is that Jesus was a king. Kings generally rode into cities. You know, if they were coming to take over the city, they would arrive on this great stallion, you know, a strong horse, dressed in their armor. Kings riding into cities after battle, after victory, returning home, they did the same. They'd have been on a strong horse, they'd have been in their armor, and the people would greet them with waving palm branches and maybe even singing Hosanna or shouting Hosanna because that king has saved them, he's delivered them. But Jesus, he's gentle and humble, just as the prophet said. But it's unusual because the crowd lay their cloaks down as if he's a victorious king. They wave palm branches and shout as if he's triumphant, not gentle. Even what they're shouting is fit for a king. It's from Psalm 118, as they say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save us. Um, if you look up Psalm 118 later, you'll see the words in the middle of it, save us, we pray. And the word in the Hebrew behind that is Hosanna. But these words became a kind of shout of praise for people. Um, not just save us, but praise you. You are the one who saves us. Like we sang other, earlier, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us. Worthy of all our praises. That's actually not a bad translation for the word Hosanna. So it's strange because he gets a king's welcome. But secondly, it's also strange because there might have been two donkeys. I, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but it's not... It's not completely clear, but in the prophecy in verse 5, it seems to suggest there was a mother and her young fool. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king's, king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Now, some of the manuscripts we have of Matthew have that word and, and some don't. But as we read on, the disciples went and Jesus, as Jesus had instructed them, they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, 
and Jesus sat on them. Now, I can't imagine what that looks like, but I can't help but get a slightly comical picture in my head as I imagine this donkey in this cold at different heights. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm not trying to make light of it. But if Jesus was seriously being received as king, why were there two donkeys? And what way was he sitting on them? And what was going on? We don't know. I wonder if Matthew was smiling to himself as he wrote that. It certainly wouldn't be what you were expecting. And while all this stuff is going on, whatever it looks like, the crowd seemed to recognize who Jesus is. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. They understand that he's a king arriving in Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then we see Jesus go into the temple. Now, so much could be said about this, um, but just a few things. Matthew has seen Jesus in a, a temple or a synagogue many times before, but never like this. I mean, he's taught with authority before in the temple. He's healed before in the temple. But this always got him into trouble, you know, so much so that on one occasion, the religious leaders chased him out of the synagogue and wanted to throw him off the brow of the hill to kill him. But this time, he doesn't just teach with authority. He acts with authority. Nobody seems to stand up to him either. I suppose the religious leaders know that actually Jesus is right. The temple was not the place to have a market. It was a holy place. But he's come to Jerusalem as king. The blind men on the road were right. The crowd were right. And the children are right. Do you see what they shout? Hosanna to the son of David. Maybe you grew up a Presbyterian like me, and you know the old song, you know, children of Jerusalem. I'll not, I'll not sing to you, but you know the one. Teachers of the law, they're indignant, but these children are singing. Out of the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise, Jesus says. Now, the, the four gospels we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all wrote to different people for different reasons, but Matthew was primarily writing to a Jewish audience as far as we know. So it makes sense that Matthew is interested in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, because the Jews were waiting for a new king who would bring this new kingdom about. We've already looked at those verses from 2 Samuel 7. They were waiting for someone to reestablish the throne of David that would last forever. So Matthew talks about the kingdom a lot. He actually mentions it 54 times, which is about three times more than any other New Testament writer. In fact, it's the first thing that Matthew records Jesus as preaching. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's, that's the first record we have in the Bible of Jesus preaching. So as Matthew begins to bring his account of Jesus to climax here at Easter, he wants us to know that the kingdom has well and truly arrived and that Jesus is the king. The two blind men, they get it. Have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd get it. Hosanna to the son of David. The children get it. But the teachers of the law, they didn't get it. God has brought his kingdom to earth. Jesus is the king. What's God's kingdom? Well, here's what the prophet Isaiah again said about this kingdom hundreds of years before Jesus came. And we sometimes read these words at Christmas. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. It's a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that will be based on justice and righteousness. Because when God created the world, that's how he intended it to be. 
a perfect relationship between human beings and God, a place of truth and justice and goodness and righteousness, perfection. But that relationship was spoiled by sin. The relationship was broken and God in his perfect justice and righteousness as his kingdom is, he must punish that sin. He must do because sin hurts people. Sin hurts people that God loves, so he must punish sin. It's part of his holy character. But rather than just you know, wipe us all off the face of the earth, which he could have done, because he loved us, God sends his son into the world, yes, as the king, but as the one who would take that punishment on our behalf, so that if we trust in him, not only would he take our sin away from us, but he would give us his perfection too and his righteousness so that our relationship with God is restored. And he rose from the dead so that the ultimate consequence of our sin, death, that was defeated. And it gives us hope that beyond the grave we live with him and that this kingdom, this new life will be forever. That's the hope of Easter. He's a pretty awesome king. The blind men can see it, if that's not an inappropriate way to say it. The children can see it. The crowd see it. They, children play and sing about it, but the teachers of the law can't. And really, they should have. They had all the information in front of them. You know, when you think of Palm Sunday, you might not immediately think, oh yes, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, I know the one. No, but God said it would happen that Jesus would ride in on a donkey and on its colt. You maybe wouldn't think about that, neither would I. But when these teachers of the law heard that Jesus had come into Jerusalem on a donkey and that he was being healed as the son of David, they knew exactly what that meant. They saw him in the temple healing the blind and the lame. They saw the passion and zeal that he had for the temple. But they couldn't see that Jesus was the Messiah, the King. What about you this morning? Do you know something? I, I really, really love preaching. I don't know if it always comes across, but I, I really love preaching. I love that I get to do this as a job, to spend time in the study, to, to research and, and meditate on what God says in the Bible, to get to tell other people about it. It's amazing. But one of the hardest things, one of the most distressing things about preaching is this, is that no matter how hard you try, there may be people sitting in front of you who've heard about Jesus for years, for a lifetime even, and they don't see who he is. Do you see it this morning? Do you see that Jesus is the king, the one who loved and lived and died and rose so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be free from all that is horrible in this world, so that you could have the hope of eternal life with him and unimaginable joy? Can you see that this morning? I hope so. But if you do see it, well, you need to know it's not just a case of seeing. It's a case of responding. You see, the other people in this story who we haven't thought too much about are the crowd, the crowd, because they do see who Jesus is, but their response ultimately is to reject him. They shout, Hosanna to the King of Kings, and then just a few days later, after the religious leaders concoct a sham trial against Jesus and Pilate asks the people, well, what do you want me to do with this man? They shout out, crucify him, crucify him. You don't get more of a rejection than that. 
The old hymn says, sometimes they strew his way and sweet his praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. It's not just about seeing who he is, but it's about responding. If you're here today and, and you see this good news about the King Jesus, then you need to do exactly as he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent simply means to change direction, to stop going the way you're going at the minute and to turn to Jesus and trust him as the forgiver of your sins, to make him the ruler or the Lord King of your life. Maybe you're here today and you're like the, the blind men or, or the children. You know, you, you feel like you're probably the last person who should really expect to know who Jesus is. But here you are, you're faced with the reality of seeing who he is. Can I ask today what you're going to do about that? Maybe you've been like the teachers of the law for a long time. You know, you've had all the information in front of you, but you've never actually really seen it. All these stories about Jesus and all these wonderful things he's meant to have done. But you see it today. Today you clearly see that he is the king. What will you do about it? Or maybe even you're like the crowd. You've seen, but you haven't accepted for yourself. You haven't turned to him before. Well, I want to ask you as well, what will you do about it? The good news is awesome news. And the time to follow Jesus is today. Now, of course, I know that many of you here today are followers of Jesus. So what do we take away today from such a familiar story? Well, in being reminded today that Jesus came to establish his kingdom, that he is the king and that you are part of that kingdom. Well, what will you do about that today? We've looked at the passage. What did the people do about it? The blind men? Well, they followed Jesus. And the others who got it, they praised Jesus. And so I think that has to be our response today. Firstly, to follow him. Maybe there's part of your life today that Jesus is not king of, at least not in your mind. You know, he's king of this part, of the coming to church part, but there are other areas of your life where you do your own thing. Maybe you spend your money your own way. Maybe there's a, a particular situation, a particular scenario, or a group of friends, or work, or whatever, where you, you kind of unconsciously even shut God out where you don't pray about what his will might be, where you know it's not exactly as it would be if Jesus was really in charge. Maybe your response today is to make him king over the things you've been holding back. And secondly, the, the people, they praise Jesus. Simply praise Jesus today. Maybe sometime later on, put on a, a worship song, a CD, or something on Spotify or YouTube or whatever you want to use. And take time in word and song simply to praise Jesus, remembering that he is the king of glory. You maybe even want to use these words, the son of David, the king of kings, the one who loves you and brought you into his kingdom, the kingdom that will never end. Is the king, today he reigns in heaven. We read in, in Revelation chapter seven, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, as we've thought together about your arrival in Jerusalem on the week when you would go to the cross and die in our place, Lord, we remember that you are the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And even today in heaven, there is a great multitude before you who wave palm branches and worship you, saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So Lord, help us today to respond, to recognize that Jesus truly is the King. And so help us to live lives that honor him and hope in eternal life. In his name, amen.